This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. The National Council of Women of New Zealand, Otautahi Christchurch Branch, recently held their 106th annual general meeting, which began with a talk by columnist, writer, and podcast producer Lana Hart. The event began with a whakatoki introduced by President Rosemary Duplessis. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Welcome everyone to this 106th AGM of this branch of the National Council of Women. I think 106 years mm-hmm. is absolutely good. amazing and a great cause for celebration. I'd just like to start with a whakatoki that I think is relevant for our meeting today. The whakatoki is no te roro, nako te roro, ka ora ai te iwi. And the translation of that is, with your food basket and my food basket, the people will thrive. And um, the discussion of that, it's on the web, but I think I might want to say a little bit about what I think is relevant for us as an organisation. The Whakatoki talks to community, to collaboration, which is really important for National Council of Women because it's an organisation of organisations. Individuals can join, but also national organisations and local organisations are a part of it, and it only works because of connection and collaboration. And it has worked that way for 126 years. Um, It acknowledges that everybody has something to offer, everybody is a piece of the puzzle, and by working together, we can all flourish. So I think that's a whakatoki that's highly relevant for Mm. us as an organisation with people who are involved in diverse other organisations, whether you're an individual member or a member who's representing a national organisation or a local branch of a national organisation is the case for some people. And I think it's also important that while at any one time some people make particular contributions to the way in which this organisation works. It can only do what it does because everyone does their own little bit and provides their own component of the work of this organisation. And it's important that we remember that at this time when we elect officers for the next year and a committee that has some special responsibilities but heavily relies on all of you as members of the organisation or potential members to do your bit with respect to particular ways in which this organisation works. I'm now going to turn over to, um, to, to Louise Tapper to introduce our speaker for this evening. Thank you. So Lana, um, it is very exciting for me to have Lana here because I've had a few little connections with Lana um, in in her support. So so Lana is a uh, journalist, a columnist, a podcaster and a writer and hopefully she might say a little bit about her writing, what she's been up to lately with her writing. Um, 
Lana has um, probably got, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Lana, but probably particular interests in issues concerning refugee and migrant populations, um, environmental issues, and women and girls. But again, she can fill us in on that as well, among lots of other areas, I'm sure, and lots of other skills that she has. Now, Rosemary and I were very lucky to meet Lana. Um, we had a brainstorming session with, at the wonderful Plains FM, and that's when we were thinking about what we were going to do with the oral histories that um, the young woman um, and experiences of COVID oral histories. And we were sort of thinking, you know, where are we going to go with this? What could we do? You know, podcast would be good. And we had this brainstorming session with Lana, which she may or may not remember a lot about. I do. I just remember her such wise advice and sound. Um, you know, it's heading us in the right direction and basically sort of, you know, probably bringing us down a bit and saying, well, you know, you probably can do this, but maybe not this, <laughs> when we were getting a bit overexcited about things. Yeah. And um, so that was just really great for us because Lara's had experience as a podcaster and, again, she may tell you about the podcast that she's, she's done. And so that started us on the track with the Plains FM and being able to turn our oral histories into podcasts and I just remember that session as being really valuable and very grateful for that. So, Lana, over to you. The floor is yours. He uria ho no tofiti no Chicago. Kamihi ki te whenua. Ko Mississippi te awa a mehia nei aku hada hada. Kamihi aho ki te mongateri. Kamihi aho ki te awa rakahuri. Kamihi aho ki te hapu o te roti ki nā tua huriri. Ko lana tene. E mihiana kia koto, noreira tena koto, tena koto, tena tato katoa. That's the best I can do in my American accent. I'm working on it. So I said, from I'm from a place far away. I'm from Chicago, and to that place I pay tribute to this land. And I said that the Mississippi River is a place that washes my sorrows away that I feel connected to. I acknowledge the mountain of the local peoples, Mongateri, which some call Mount Grey, and I acknowledge the Rakahuri River, which is the Ashley River. I acknowledge the subtribe of this area, which I often have problems pronouncing, but I'm really starting to nail it in my uh, Tadeo classes, Na Tua Huriri. I'm called Lana. I acknowledge everyone here tonight, and therefore, we are part of the same group. What a joy to be back in the warm clutch of National Council for Women, um, New Zealand, because um, it's, it's an organization that I had a lot to do with at the start of my career in this country. And um, so I'm going to do a little bit of a walk down memory lane, and I hope that some of you, I'm sure that many of you have been involved in the organization for um, you know, 20 or more years. So I, I, I hope to share some of those memories with you. So it feels to me a little bit like circling back to the place that I started all those years ago. And that might be why I've chosen to call tonight's speech a good feminist. Um, not sure if I've always been able to be one, but we'll, we'll talk about that. So in thinking about women's issues and my involvement with them over the years, I'm forced to reflect on my relationship with the set of ideas that is modern feminism. And as I thought about this relationship, it reminded me of other relationships in my life, the long-term ones, the enriching ones, the complicated ones, the ones that ebb and flow and change as we grow in ourselves and in the changing world around us. These are the marriages, the long-term friendships and business partners with the disruptive and the empowering and transformative people that make us think and make us love and make us change. And I have to say that's 
how it's been for me and this thing called feminism. I've loved it and I've left it and I've held it close to my heart and I've even forgotten about it, only to find that it was always there, like an old friend. And in many ways, the National Council of Women has been a part of that long-term relationship too. Let me explain. I migrated to New Zealand with my Auckland-born partner in 1997. After having our first kid and working in cafes for a while, I got my first real job, a job that reflected the master's degree uh, that I had earned uh, years before in Sydney, Australia, in what we believed was the world's first interdisciplinary postgraduate degree in women's studies. The job was at the Human Rights Commission in Auckland as their first women's advocate. Now, some of you may recall, reaching back into your memories from last century, that Jenny Shipley's national government of the, of the late 1990s was working hard at courting the women's organizations for the 1999 election. And part of the political offering, I was told, was to have a women's commissioner at the cabinet table for the New Zealand government. It never happened. Helen Clark formed the coalition government in 1999, and the funds apportioned for the women's commissionership fell to various agencies, including the Human Rights Commission, to advance women, human, human right, women's human rights in New Zealand. So it was a rather impressive budget that uh, went to work at the Commission on Women's Human Rights Issues. And the Commission set about hiring someone to develop and implement an action plan. And who did they ask to be on the recruitment panel? But the three main women's organizations at the time. They were business and professional women. It was Maureen Erdley Wilmot, who was the national president, Maori Women's Welfare League, Jackie Takana was the lead, and you guessed it, the National Council for Women. And the national president at the time was Barbara Glennie. It's a name that you recognize, right? She was maybe five years as the national president in the late 90s and early noughties. So there I was, a 32-year-old new mother, new migrant, sitting there on an interview panel with three representatives from my adopted country's most powerful women's organizations, trying to convince them that I could actually come up with an action plan that would advance women's human rights based on the principles of the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, or CEDAW. CEDAW. Now, I had only found out about this important international um, piece of law a week before my interview for the job. I did a crash course on international human rights law over coffee with a friend who probably should have gotten the job instead of me. But I did, and certainly brought a strong sense of imposter syndrome into the role with me. And here's the thing. The commission asked the NGO representatives on the recruitment panel to serve on a steering committee to help guide the work of the women's advocate. So Barbara Glennie and the others, they hung around and became important mentors to the delivery of this work. You look like you're nodding your head a lot, Rosemary. <laughs> Do you remember some of this? Were you involved in NCW at the time? Uh, um, no, not, not, not a lot at that time. I was involved in other women's organizations. Yeah, she was fabulous, Barbara. So our action plan was developed, and in the year 2000, we landed on the top three women's human rights issues for that time. Does anyone want to have a guess as to what you think they might have been? Yeah, well done. I was going to bring chocolate fish, ran out of time. Well done. Pay equity, one. Two more. Violence against women. Almost. Very close. Workplace violence or harassment. Yeah. One more. 
Now, a lot of our work was around the public area of employment at that time. So it was in these... Women as mentors in their trades and things? Very, very, very good. I mean, it was around discrimination against women and addressing all forms of discrimination within that workplace sphere because that's where a lot of the complaints were coming from at the commission. So very good. Chocolate fish all around. Um, so Barbara Glennie and the National NCW Office were an important part of that mahi in both supporting it and steering it. And I attended plenty of NCW meetings like these to consult and present on that work. We gave sexual harassment in the workplace a lot of resources and time. We conducted new research on the Commission's own complaints. We had over 300 complaints at the time to look at and assess. Ran a public survey on the incidence of harassment, which revealed that one in three New Zealanders of every demographic had experienced some form at that stage. We set up a national network of sexual harassment prevention trainers, and we ran a national advertising campaign on TV, radio, and print media. So we did some really big national campaigns on the prevention of harassment year on year. Discrimination in the workplace needed a lot of love too. We had regular complaints coming in in the pre-employment area. And for that was when women suspected that, a, that they hadn't won a job because of their sex. But this murky area of discrimination is so hard to substantiate because applicants would rarely have access to potential employers' documents to corroborate their claim that a less experienced man was chosen instead of them. But we chipped away at this crucial women's human rights issue because anecdotal and complaints data told us that this, alive, this issue was alive and well. And also on the issue of discrimination in the workplace, we argued for an extension on the paid parental leave provisions, which you might remember in 2000 were significantly less than they are now. Better breastfeeding rights for, both, uh, for women, both in public and in the workplace, and the rights of sex workers to be protected under the same employment laws as other workers. Eventually, most of these problems were addressed. Paid parental leave uh, provisions were extended to 26 weeks. The prostitution reform bill was passed and breastfeeding rights were, rights were strengthened. And finally, the last of our big three issues was pay equity. Pay equity. Hmm. To be honest, I almost, yeah, I was really intimidated by this issue. And in fact, I was overwhelmed by it sometimes because back then I felt it was so technical. You know, it was a lot of talk about comparative pay rates and, and complicated formulas that parts, parts of those formulas were in dispute. There were occupational codes that matched or didn't match other comparative codes. Um, and it seemed like the only people that could talk about this stuff with any credibility were people that had done a deep dive into the mathematics of pay equity. So as important as it was, I found it hard to wrap my head around that and to kind of communicate pay equity issues to others. My feeling of being an imposter in this role became very, very much more pronounced when I tried to address pay equity. Now, with the hindsight of years, I now see that I should have stepped back from the numbers and spoken in broad terms about equality versus equity. I should have helped the numbers people communicate the ideas underpinning pay equity by using my platform to tell everyday, real-life stories about the pay of nurses, firefighters, librarians, and police. I should have narrated the problem differently. But what I then considered to be better feminists, Marilyn Waring, Prue Hyman, Janice Burns, all these incredibly intelligent women working on this issue, they were doing a pretty good job of telling that story themselves. 
And, there, and this earlier work really set the foundation for the claims that we now see today that are working their way through the courts and the collective agreements in our country. So the funding for the women's advocate role ended and the commission underwent a major restructure and I ended up establishing and managing the new Equal Employment Opportunities Unit at the commission. During that time, I'd had another baby, but instead of a healthy one, I got one with a serious heart problem, which was caused by my own autoimmune condition. These were tough times, a three-day-old baby who needed a heart operation, in and out of hospital, trying to keep the breastfeeding going when I returned to full-time work when he was only 12 weeks old. Thankfully, his father could stay at home to care for both our kids, but the exhaustion and stress I experienced in spite of that only furthered my resolve to work on increasing parental leave provisions for the women of New Zealand and to argue for the importance of part-time substantial work for professional women. Not sure if we've cracked that one yet. In 2005, and fully burnt out from operating in a national management role, I left the commission. Life for me was changing. I was changing. I was experiencing that incredible force that is motherhood. My body and brain were being shaped by the hands of 50-hour work weeks and lots of travel away from my young family. And something else had happened. I'd started volunteering as a refugee support person for a new Somali family that had just arrived in Auckland. I became really interested in settlement issues and the infrastructure that supports them. Plus, it had re-sparked that part of me that had traveled the world for four years before I migrated to New Zealand. My love of different culture, cultures had once again had a chance to grow. Even though I knew I was in a privileged role to be able to work as a paid feminist, I also knew that life was flowering into so much more than submissions to parliament, campaigns, policy statements, and presentations to groups like this one tonight. And do you remember, this was the time when all four of the top positions, the constitutional roles were held by women in this country. Helen Clark, Sylvia Cartwright as the Governor General, Sean Elias as the Chief Justice, and Margaret Wilson, the Speaker of the House. I remember um, my son asking me, he was about four years old, Mom, can men be Prime Ministers too? Oh, I love that. So our family quit the busiest city in New Zealand and moved to one of the most remote, to Auraki, Mount Cook. I got pregnant, had another heart baby with more heart operations, and slipped into life by the fire in the mountains with three kids. It was my partner's turn to take the job of the family breadwinner as a search and rescue ranger. Amongst life in our busy family home and the long trips to Timaru for supplies, a new emotion started creeping into my life. One might call it feminist guilt. When I left Auckland, I seemed to have left my focus on women's, wish, women's issues behind. I've, it felt like I was no longer really practicing feminism. In fact, I often asked myself, was I still a feminist at all? If there was so much work to be done, why had I ended up in a cold but spectacular village of 180 people with no access to the holes of power that I had just left? What was the meaning of all that work and thinking and education if it wasn't, to do at least, it wasn't at least to do something towards advancing women's human rights? I did a post-grad degree in international development to help alleviate some of that guilt. 
and did contract work for the EEO Trust, now Diversity Works, and that helped a little. But when our youngest hit three years old, I started actively looking for work again in women's organizations. I didn't know how I was going to do it, work remotely, commute to Auckland or Wellington, or take on short-term contracts, but I was ready to start being a good feminist again. But then tragedy struck. Our 11-year-old daughter, who, unlike her two siblings, had a well-functioning heart and was rarely sick, was found to have a massive tumor growing in her abdomen. On the day it was discovered at the GPs in Twizel, she and I packed a bag and headed to Christchurch to begin the next stage of our lives. The next day, the rest of, our, of the family arrived, and other than a final visit to pack up the house several months later, we never returned to the mountains. Things were bad. It was advanced stage four Wilms tumor. It had spread from her kidneys throughout her liver, lungs, and other organs, and was about ready to move into that beautiful heart of hers when we finally caught it. Our family moved to Ronald McDonald House in Christchurch, then Ranui House, and her dad and I took turns, spending night after night, month after month, staying with our daughter in hospital. My feminist guilt was quickly replaced by much more primal, urgent emotions, emotions, emotions that kept me smiling when, inside, I was desperately afraid. Instinctive drives that made me learn everything I could about my daughter's cancer, the services and medications and people that might help her turn a corner into a long battle with the disease. Women's issues didn't matter so much to me anymore. Then one day, a couple of months into her treatment, I sat in the community room in the child cancer unit. And as in so many other afternoons, I'd been talking to other cancer mums about their kids' health, chatting with the nurses about their weekends or recent trainings, and greeting the young, usually bold patients as they came in to join the gentle rhythm of the ward. As I looked around the room, I suddenly realized there is almost no other sector that enjoys the power and the influence of everyday women more than the health sector. Everywhere you look, there are women shaping important services while juggling their own busy lives outside of work. The nurses, cleaners, the play specialists, the social workers, psychologists, dietitians, and radiographers, this is a female-rich sector, and this is where I now found myself living. Here, in everyday conversations and in my relationships with the people around me, in the support I received and offered to others, in the ways in which I raised my own daughters to live here in spite of it all, in the small ways I could improve this female-dominated sector and the incredible practitioners who work here. Here is a place that I was, after all, being the best feminist I could be at the time. There are endless ways to be a good feminist, no matter where you are. And then I knew that was good enough. My daughter worked through a year of chemotherapy, surgeries, radiation, and a stem cell transplant, and emerged a physically damaged but very much alive preteen who was ready for the next battles that life threw at her. We moved to our home in Christchurch, and when the earthquake struck a few months later, we realized just how resilient we'd all become to destructive forces 
that are so much greater than ourselves. There were so many other lessons I learned in that extraordinary year, but the one about the many ways to practice and express one's commitment to women, to be a good feminist wherever you are, that one has continued to shape my life. I went on to work in the migrant settlement area and with refugees and their families, and I started broadcasting at the community access radio station, Plains FM. Laura, who is here tonight with us, taught me more than half of everything I know about radio. Thank you, Laura. Sometimes it was easy to weave feminism into my everyday life and work, like supporting migrant women to tell their stories through making podcasts or including women-focused content into the curriculum and classes that I taught at Ada Institute of Canterbury. In other roles, though, it's been trickier to see how to bring in a woman's empowerment narrative. Like when I worked with the Filipino workforce during the Canterbury rebuild, it was a man's world out there. Or when I started writing fortnightly opinion pieces for stuff.co.nz, Many of the social and political issues I'd become interested in didn't have an obvious connection with women's issues, so I often just didn't write about them. One project, however, I worked on really challenged my inner feminist. After the Christchurch mosque attacks, the team at Plains FM and, and I started a daily radio program called After March 15th. One project I worked on really challenged my inner feminist. After the Christchurch mosque attacks, the team at Plains FM and I started a daily radio program called After March 15th, which put the microphone in front of members of the affected Muslim community, service providers, and experts working in the areas of racism, hate speech, and policy. But there was one group of people that we didn't hear from in those first months after the tragedy, the widows of the victims. We used our connections in the refugee and migrant communities to find four diverse widows that were willing to tell us to find four diverse widows that were willing to let us walk alongside them to learn more about their husbands, their grief, their way of life, and the massacre itself. RNZ National and Plains FM sponsored the eight-part podcast and radio series called Widows of Shuhada. I was the lead producer and writer, so getting to know the widows and their families put me right in the middle of their lives, their mosques, and their kitchens. It was fascinating learning about the Islamic way of life. Even though their behaviors at first seemed to me prescribed and ritualized, there were diverse and bold and smart women underneath the layers of cloth and custom. And incredibly, in spite of what had happened to their husbands, they were mostly accepting of their fate and full of compassion and love. In this world, women-only spaces prevailed. In the absence of men for much of their daily and public lives, the sisterhood thrived. Decision-making changed into a consensus, a conversation. But my own values were seriously challenged throughout what turned out to be almost a year of work. I was scolded by a male elder at the mosque for accidentally exposing my ankles. I grew frustrated at the transportation problems we had because women weren't expected to learn to drive. On the flip side, I was surprised to learn that Muslim women tend to keep their father's, not their husband's surname. 
that they can earn and save money of their own. That girls' education is an important part of the faith, although some of the cultures that practice Islam had systematically stripped that right away. That wearing a hijab in most families is a choice for each woman to make on their own at the right time in her life. The entire project and the Muslim friends that I made along the way made for a fascinating chapter in my own life. And even as I butted against my own feminist ideals every day, it was wonderful to explore the world of women in an entirely new way. And this is an important thing about the framework of ideas that is feminism. Ideas about gendered power structures and autonomy are always in tension with other forces and ideas. Feminism keeps us on our toes, doesn't it? More recently, for example, we've been forced to think about women's rights against the rights of transgender people. Is the focus on women-only spaces really meant only for women born as girls? Are these spaces as necessary as they used to be? And what do we mean by woman? And that persistent issue of sexual harassment that formed part of our Women's Human Rights Action Plan back in 2000, the issue is now often framed around the idea of sexual consent. Who gives it and what does it look like? But does this leave behind one of the central ideas of traditional feminism, that power differences must be identified and taken into account in any sexual transaction? The high-profile case of Harvey Weinstein, which inspired the worldwide Me Too movement, certainly took power into account. And last week's E. Jean Carroll versus Donald Trump was another example of powerful men being held to account for their historical abuse. To a point. But alongside these cases is our increasingly sexualized world, where social media enables easy and frequent exchanges of sexual material, which reinforces those ancient ideas about woman as an entirely sexual entity and shapes young women's ideas of what beauty is and what is good. This constant tug of war between these powerful forces in the world, this progress and then these new challenges, it begs us all to keep thinking, to keep talking about these and other issues, and to continually adapt our views about power and gendered systems to the world around us. For me, this is becoming the, the key to being the feminist that I want to be, continuing to learn about the new issues that women face and then do what we've always done, think, challenge, discuss, and use our quiet, everyday interactions to nudge the world to be a better place. Because working towards women's human rights isn't just the role of women's advocates and pay equity experts and politicians, it's something that all of us do every day, wherever we are. Thanks so much. Namihi Nui, thanks for having me speak with you tonight. Thank you very Thank much. You. You've been listening to columnist, writer, and podcast producer, Lana Hart, speaking at the annual general meeting of the New Zealand Council of Women of New Zealand, Otautahi Christchurch Branch, 